It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to The Blogcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name's Fergus Collins, and I've got the lucky job of being the host of the podcast. Particularly lucky with this episode, where last autumn I headed out into the Mendip Hills to meet historian and writer Amy Jeffs. It was a dark and foggy night, and we descended into Goat Church Cavern in the company of caver Daniel Matthews from the Mendip Caving Group, where Amy was able to talk about her new book, Wild Tales from Early Medieval Britain. It's absolutely magic. Well, this is a night for myths and legends, isn't it? it? certainly is. Yeah, the mist is really wrapping around us. It's an it's yeah. environment for stories. Breath is coming out. Just, well, caught in the, in, the, in the headlights of our helmet torches. Mm-hmm. It's going crazy. And we've got this lovely rainforesty feeling with the ferns yeah. dripping over the water and the vines hanging from the trees. What's happening here, Dan? Uh, just uh, this is where the stream enters into the cave from the surface, uh, but it doesn't actually go into Goat Church. Just goes into Pierre's Pot, which is a cave that's just over there. There is a small stream inside Goat Church, but um, so we're going to head up the path mm-hmm. left. It's on a dark, dark night. We are wandering up this hillside <laughs> and I've got wet feet already these are expensive shoes which well, let water in <laughs> so this is we've come to the members to talk well we're going to talk about underground we're going to talk about your book we're going to talk about all sorts of things but it seems from a couple of the chapters of your book The underground is a very important part of the myths and legends. <laughs> it is. Well, the, um, the book is, um, is structured across seven themed chapters entitled Earth, Ocean, Forest, Beast, Fen, Catastrophe, Paradise. And Paradise, um, the, for each chapter there's a, a, re, a, a short story, an original short story inspired by the medieval sources and uh, followed by a commentary, a non-fiction commentary where I do a bit of travelling. Paradise is in the Avalon Marshes, where we met last time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, but Earth, the first chapter, is, is here underground. We've arrived at the sort of 
stony mouth of a cave. Lovely, isn't it? It's like and, a, uh, it looks like rough puff pastry, the, yeah, the stones hang. This isn't the cave we're going in. This is, uh, this is not, okay. No, no this, this is Sidcot Swallet. It's uh, one of the other caves. Sid, what's in it called? Swallet. Sidcot Swallet. And this, this is this is a cave, but we're not going in this one. Right? No, this one's okay. quite squeezy. Squeezy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I'm uh, <laughs> squeezy caves. <laughs> All right. Not not my top ten lists of bucket lists. Are we still going up? Yeah, yeah, we're still going up. Oh, we're not Which going way? Following you. Okay, back down. Oh, okay. Sorry, I was I was just demonstrating. I was just showing them a ticket. Showing off your caves. Yeah. <laughs> Is this, a, is this a stream in summer? I bet it's dry in summer, is it? Uh, no, it's still running in summer. Yeah, it's okay. a natural spring. It's oh, up there. Straight off the top of the Mendix. Yeah. yeah. So is this our cave? No. No? This is the lower part of the you cave. You tease. <laughs> no, this is, this is the cave, but this is the lower part of the cave. Okay. So this is what's known as a tradesman's entrance. <laughs> right, okay. Um, it doesn't look very inviting in terms of... It's the way out. Okay. Um, the only thing I haven't done is I haven't put a rope in. Normally I put a rope in, but I'm trusting you guys are... We did it before, didn't we, without yeah. a rope? It's I'm sure fine. you'll be okay at climbing it. It's not difficult. I can spot you all the way up. Okay. So we're at the, yeah, yeah. We're at the mouth of the cave. Here we go. Down Sorry. into the cave. Now this is conquering of fears. But. <laughs> First person to spot a bat is the winner. Oh, I can't wait to be the winner. Oh, the loser, God forbid. So what is the sort of sparkling encrusted stuff? Well, salty... Calcite. Okay, so that's sort of just a, oozing out of the rock. Yeah. yeah. That's a crystalline substance. It's yeah. salty. Big spiders. <laughs> Descending this passage. Oh into the earth. It looks like, doesn't this cave look like one what of those Christmas like? cards you get, which is um, got, you know, lots of layers, like a, like a telescopic. Um, so you look at the sort of circles of, of kind of the foreground, middle ground, background, just going back, 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 going yeah, darker and darker. Yeah, yeah. It looks like it could be like a concertina Christmas card. <laughs> yes, it does go all quite away. There's a little bat just hanging under a, an overhang. I think it's easier just going on your bum at this point. Yeah, probably. Well, I'll, I'll show you to get them all. So we've also got along with us today, Alex. Hello. Stella. Hello. Hi. You're doing all right back there? Yeah. <laughs> Come along with Amy, um, fellow artists. I don't know why they've come down into this deep, dark cave, but they seem to be enjoying it more than I am. As I Struggle down a steep, slippery slope. There's another bat up there. So you're you're kind of you're kind of chief bat spotter. They look like little mollusks, don't they? They're yeah. kind of bivalves, even not mollusks. Where their wings kind of part, and you see a little bit of their faces, like mm, nice. like a muscle at the beach. Oh, this? oh I see it. Yeah, yeah. I think they look like figs. Figs. Yeah, yeah you're right. Earth figs. Earth figs. Amazing formations on the ground above us. It looks like what modern wax, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, yeah, sort of grooved, dripping down, but that's what it has been doing, just a bit slower. Yeah, I think it's called flowstone. Is that right, Dan? Yeah. Flowstone. Are we sliding down this bit now? 
Yeah. Is this the right yeah. way, Dan? How do we get um cram from soil. This yeah. side. It can't, it can't go any further than that. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> it's literally, it's literally a test slide, that one. Oh, make, make sure you're happy with what you're about to do. <laughs> oh, is there even sleeper one coming? Down there. Oh, my God. Feet is broke. Like, widen your feet and stop the oh, Okay, big heels in. Down here. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is like a vertical drop. <laughs> no, which is fine, apart from holding... So I think, I think in the book we're yeah, talking about, at this point, um, about the idea, the medieval idea that the earth or the firmament is in some way a, a reflection, reflected by the human body, that man is microcosm, that everything that the earth has, the human body has in some form. Um, and when Bede describes the underground or, or stone in his text on the nature of things, he says that the earth has sponge-like innards, and he talks about the veins of the earth. And when, when I was recalling this moment in visiting the cave, it, um, it was particularly this slide now. I really felt like one of, like a, like a lumen of food going down <laughs> someone's <laughs> down throat. <laughs> yes, exactly. The gullet of the earth. I didn't know Bede was a climber. A cave. Oh, yeah, no, Bede was spelunking with the best of them. Really? <laughs> I mean, really, we, we could be. I don't know if you, you need to yeah. cut open a, <laughs> a heart if anyone's done that at school or with a. For a lamb's heart. Yeah. For a, for a, for a student. Mm. Which is quite an exciting. Yeah. I feel like that's what, when you've got those kind of folds and vent, the kind of uh, the texture of the ventricles. Yeah. That's, I feel like that's, uh, that's something you can see here. I mean, I'm taking the medieval um, analogy too far, obviously, just for fun. But. Um, well, we have been swallowed. We are being swallowed by the earth. If you could yeah. just stop for us and uh, yeah. send the next person down, just spot them so they don't go too far, that's all. How far down does it go? Does it just spiral until you get hotter and hotter? All the way hotter. to Tartarus. Yeah. 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 Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh. So it's, it's, well, like a set, it's like a set of steps. <laughs> yeah, it's a club. I've <laughs> never been, it's Up so much fun. So you sit down, down, slide down, put your feet out in front of yeah. Everyone spread their bodies out at the bottom as a mattress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good idea. You've done some pretty uh, extreme things from the field book, haven't you? Oh some... yeah, it's all an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you take the experiences you want to have and you think, how, how can one put a book around this? <laughs> that's, that's the podcast we need to so you're just in wellies? Yeah. Classic caving gear. Yep, wellies, the best caving footwear you can get. Yeah, I think they're better than walking boots as well. Oh, okay. oh definitely. I, I took a friend caving the other week and I said to her, wear some wellies. And she was like, no, no, I wear walking boots. I was like, I guarantee you they're not going to be grippy. And she was complaining for the trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there we go, an advert for wellies there from Tim. Yeah, but she learned, learned to wear wellies on the next one. This podcast is sponsored by all wellie manufacturers. I'm, I'm sliding sometime in the night on a late November evening down a very slippery shaft, which is... <laughs> there are um, angelic voices from the dead. This is quite a drop here. Gonna get a bit of weird sound here. Yeah, just about bent around that corner. 
just an extraordinary adventure. So most people think spirits of these dark places are sonorous, serious and and uh, melancholic, but no, we found three who are... Three silly twerps. <laughs> That's the local name for spirits. <laughs> so now we're going to... Oh, this is lovely. There's a dead mouse there. Is there? Yeah. Oh, lovely. You can really... Uh, this bit feels so sculpted, doesn't it, by the water. You can almost see it eddying and, and swirling yeah, down gosh. this. I don't want to get caught in it. It's a, it, I think it's a dead bowl, actually. Mine. Oh, my very nice. There's a bowl in a hole. How are you doing, Fergus? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm great, yeah. yeah. That sound is my helmet hitting the stone. So now we're kind of yeah. on all... We're sort of handing our way along a wall. It's like a... It's like we're, it, the, the corridor is at an angle, so we have to walk... Oh. I hang out of the wall, sorry. Do we go up, Dan? Uh, yeah. Yes. Head towards the air. <laughs> Wait, does the right go anywhere? Yes, it does. We're waiting for that, being a little bit. Here we've got some flow stain that really looks like a chocolate fountain. It does. Yeah, yeah, the water dripping off it looks sort of. And occasionally you get these lovely sort of passages that up here, there's one just opening up to our left. Do people squeeze down there, Dan? Yeah, so you can squeeze into that. That's that part's what we call the maze. What the, what the, the, the maze. The maze. The maze because so there's lots of squeezy bits that you can go and squeeze through and... Oh, oh really? Um, the rest of the way is on down there. Oh, here it is. Just flew out. Huge bat. Here it is. Whoa. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Guys, there's a bat. Oh, I see. Settled. It's landed on the stick. No, no. It's over here. It's over here. It's here. It's it's it sounds on the bat action. It should be hibernating, but then again saying that it is... It has been warm to oh, late, so it's probably just starting to hibernate down. Yeah. Uh, do you know what species these are, don't you? That's a horseshoe. That's a horseshoe. So the small ones, that's the same size as the ones we just... They're all lesser yeah. horseshoes, are they? So they look a lot bigger in flight than... Um, yeah. yeah okay. What do you call that thing where the caterpillar turns into the moth? Metamorphosis. Chrysalis. Um, yeah, that's the one. There's one here. A chrysalis. What, yeah. The metal one or the battle? No, there's a there's a chrysalis. No, the classic thing is in in the horror movies is to prod it and then the, the don't prod it. <laughs> what happens? Well, it, you get goo on your finger and then it, it devours you. Right. So where you're heading at the moment is going to take you out of the exit that we were stood at. Uh, okay. I feel the cool air rushing down. That's an amazing formation there, just like a sort of... Yeah. Is, that, is that a stalactite that's come down, or is it just water has eroded so, that? Eventually, it is a stalactite, so eventually so the bottom and top have met. Yeah. So it would have started off as a stalagmite and a stalactite, and then it's just grown over time and joined together, and it creates that formation. The swish of the oversuit is one of the... Would be a memorable podcast sound. The swish of the the oversuit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad I put one on. My goodness, I was half thinking I wouldn't. I just love how it's so micro climate. The warmth. It's, it's, it's sort of strangely warm here. It's so cold and miserable outside today. Mm-hmm. I got lost in the fog trying to find 
up on the Mendips, fog on the Mendips. And yet, down here, yes. the climate probably stays the same all the time. The thing I love about having a head torch is the way that the light kind of comes and goes, and that you can't see the whole cave at once. I'm glad because I've benefited from yours as well, which is mm -hmm. quite nice. Will you sing a song? Do you like? Oh, oh. <laughs> yes, yeah, a song would be lovely. Yeah. If you're happy. Yes, I mean now. What will you sing? So the, the audiobook is um is illustrated with folk songs. Um I wrote them with my old uh, university friend Robbie who's a who's a brilliant musician. He uh, arranged them. I wrote six, he wrote one, but he did all the arrangements. The, chapter, the song for chapter three is all about the forest and about madness, and it tells the story of a, of a man with leprosy who has um, he's received a prophecy that he is going to die by the hand of the wind by being pushed off a cliff into a waterfall, and then he will go to heaven. And, uh, but he's, as he's standing there on the cliff edge, he's remembering some time uh, in the forest when a, a, uh, a wandering man called Sweeney um, landed in one of the trees and they spent a year, a year together. This is in... Are they already done? Yeah, that's what Amy went on. They've spent... Um, it's, it's based on an Irish legend called the Wheel of Sweeney, the, bad, the Madness of Sweeney. And a Welsh poem called the Clav Abakiag, the leper of, of Abakiag. So um, did you blend those so two together? I blended them together for the short story, um, and uh, I could try doing the the Earth song. Shall we see how it sounds? Yeah, okay. Under an oak tree, I sit among the dead. Here, where the light is limited. For a thousand years he imprisoned me Only in the dawn can I walk free Ancient is this earth hall I am all longing I am so
So Earth, uh, the purpose of each chapter is to, is to transport the reader into uh, my interpretation of an old idea of the wilderness. So the, the, this is rooted in, um, in real life uh, surviving texts and artefacts uh, that I've sort of, um, used as a prompt for a short story. Um, and then the commentary that follows the short story then introduces the reader to those sources and hopefully a more uh, an opportunity for them to, to spin their own imaginative journeys. Um, the Earth chapter takes as its primary source a, um, a poem from the Exeter book. The Exeter book is a manuscript from about 970 uh, that arrived at Exeter Cathedral in 1072 and has been there ever since. And it's one of four big compendia of Old English poetry. Um, and is an incredible insight into the emotional subtlety and sense of humour of our Old English-speaking forebears. It's got some 95 Old English riddles in it, some of which are, are very rude and obscene. Um, but in among we'll the riddles... have in a minute, if that's, if that's OK. <laughs> yeah, we can have one now. <laughs> so one is uh, one that I will paraphrase, but it, it says, um, you know, I, I stand up straight in a bed and I'm hairy at my base and uh, I, I make my lady's eyes water. Um, which is believed to be an onion is the uh, is the solution uh, there in keeping with the kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, uh, you know double entendre of some of the other riddles. Um, in and amongst the riddles, there is a. Um, um, uh, I mean, there's actually some some really much more kind of uh, dark ones. I think one of one of the riddles describes a a Welsh slave girl using a, uh, um, a leather implement for something and it sort of describes the leather implement being swept up into the darkness and it describes her in very pejorative terms and, uh, and you get an insight into the, the kind of um, how the, the plight of women in, in the early medieval period and especially uh, perhaps foreign, foreign slaves um, as they were seen from an from a English perspective and how they were kind of scorned um, and perhaps objectified as well, definitely objectified. Uh, so anyway, there are these, these uh, riddles, and in and among them are 
a selection of poems known as the Old English Elegies that uh, have, as they share in common, an interest in themes like the transience of life and love and exile and quite often you have this, this a sort of single narrator at the centre very little description of contemporary technology which makes them very timeless you've just got this kind of mind and and a description of the wilderness so it might be that's the thing to, of the essence of the book is it's yeah it's the, it's the wild through the eyes of the, these people yes so they, they're, they're really yeah, the pole star okay. these these elegies yeah. um so one is narrated by a man spinning out on the frozen ocean in a boat. Uh, another, the wife's lament, is is what I focus on for the uh, for the earth chapter, and she's enclosed in an earthen dugout under an oak tree, and she says she's been told to wait there by her lord, but she doesn't know where he's gone and why he's left her and why he won't come back. She says all her friends are dead, um, and she says uh, that she, you know, she says ancient is this earth hall. I am all longing. And she's this kind of archetype for, for yearning, for sorrow, for longing. Um, and as the poem progresses, her, her lament sort of transmutes into a curse. And she, she imagines him out on the frozen ocean alone, which is actually quite an interesting sort of uh, way in which the, the, these poems seem to speak to each other. Um, some scholars have suggested that the poems, the elegies, are riddles too, and that they've got some kind of solutions that we haven't yet worked out. Um, I personally like the fact that we don't know and maybe the mystery is, is the heart of their aesthetic power. But this, uh, this poem was interpreted by a scholar called Sarah Semple as to uh, maybe have been narrated by a woman trapped in a prehistoric barrow, so perhaps buried there, um, and it's her soul speaking. Um, and that's kind of what I, I take for the, for the story. Um, and uh, but I also I mean each chapter has has the kind of um, literary side to it, but I also want to talk about how each aspect of the wilderness was understood in more literal terms or geographically. Um, and so for the Earth chapter, we while we spend quite a lot of time in and around prehistoric barrows and and their use as execution cemeteries in the later in the later Anglo-Saxon period. Um, we also go to Monk Wilmoth Jarrow in the age of the Venerable Bede, and uh, we follow him to a book chest in the in the monastery where he brings out a copy of a book, um, his own his own text on the nature of things, and describes exactly what the earth is. I'll just to bring you back to when you said execution cemetery. Mm-hmm. So uh, the barons, which I'm very uh, kind of they're these obviously haunting burial mounds in the mm-hmm. landscape. They were ancient. To the people mm-hmm. who wrote these poems, they're already ancient. Yes. So for us, they're super ancient. But what what's the execution element of? Because that's that happens mm. in, this, in your story, and it's it's this heartbreak. That, I mean, the, the thing for me about the story was the she was expecting to run off with this. You say the, his kiss tasted of salt and honey, and there's this sort of image of just this. Like, it's it's just great. It's wonderful. It's love, and then. The next day, she's sort mm. of captured and yes. killed, and that's the execution thing, which is the yes, why, why is she captured and killed? I don't. Is that part of the, the riddle? Well, it's maybe she, he is somebody she shouldn't be with. Oh, I see. Okay. And so and so it's I, um, I. I we don't know exactly why. So basically, there are um, prehistoric barrows existed in the landscape when the first Germanic migrants who would become the English landed on the east coast of England of then Britain and uh, and they had their own tradition of building burial mounds for their dead as we know from the Sutton Hoo ship burial 
uh, which is the kind of last right. vestiges of that pagan culture or pre-Christian culture. And, um, and so uh, what they seem to have done, and I'm, I'm here, I'm quoting a, a really interesting book called Deviant Burial Practices in Anglo-Saxon England by a man called Andrew Reynolds. He, he observed that um, it seems that in the early, in the pre-Christian period, these Germanic tribes built their own shrines on the existing burial mounds that they found here, shrines to Woden and, and the gods that they worshipped, so the, the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of Odin. And, um, but then as they were converted to Christianity, these um, monuments on the landscape, whether they were built by their own ancestors or they were prehistoric, uh, came to take on a kind of malevolent significance or a kind of uh, a threatening significance. And they are often found on the, the boundaries of, of um, Anglo-Saxon territories, so kind of way out away from the heart of the settlement. And, um, and from the kind of Christian period onwards, or the conversion onwards, they start being used as execution cemeteries. Um, and he, Andrew Reynolds, sort of makes this observation and he, he gathers various examples of, um, of burials which have the hallmarks of, of violent death. So uh, they're prone, as in the, the people are lying on their, on their um, fronts, uh, and perhaps their hands are crossed in front of them, which is indicative of them having been tied. Um, there also might be some evidence of injury to at like the back of the neck. Um, and uh, he, he even posits kind of cadaveric spasm, which is something that the corpse does after death and extreme tension. Um, like, he, like pain and horror. Yes. That's the thing, that's the thing that sort of it's comes really, through. You, I mean, you capture it brilliantly in the chapter you. that way. Sort of. <laughs> It's kind of it's it's fascinating and horrible, you know. It's one yeah. of those things where you you think you're watching a film and then you remember that it's well, it that these like were real lives. It felt like a, it was a horror story. It's just trapped after death in this mm. ancient tomb with all these other bones. Yeah, so that's what um, stuck in there forever, or you know, just gnawing away. Well, it's horrifying. Anger. So when um, so basically, I mean, he also finds uh, examples of of corpses that have been buried with quernstones or millstones on them, holding them down as if it's a kind of fear of the dead. Um, sort of stop them from walking, kind they of. They really them. didn't like these people. They yeah, it's really very horrible. wrong. They just didn't want them coming back. But we don't know why. You know, he gives examples of women buried with um, beaver tooth pendants, which may have been a sort of cunning woman. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Like a witch. Yeah. So perhaps they, perhaps they were witches. Perhaps they were murderers. Perhaps they were adulterers. Perhaps they were people who, um, you know, had transgressed in some way. And um, well, they must have been. So. What, he, he makes that argument. Semple, who I mentioned before, Sarah Semple, she takes this argument and she adds in what we know from literature about these burial mounds. So, for instance, at the end of Beowulf, there is a, a burial mound full of treasure that is guarded by a dragon. And, of course, that's, that dragon becomes Smaug in The Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. and, and the little this runaway slave who, who steals a cup from the hoard in... Beowulf is the Hobbit. He's Bilbo. Um, Bilbo. Yes. This um, is a Bil This is this is too cold and drafty for a Hobbit down here. Right? It certainly yeah. is. You know, this is no Hobbit hole. Um, this is a definitely much definitely more of a goblin um, yeah, hideout. Yeah, orcs and goblins yeah. down here. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I think the orcs and goblins have gone off to explore another bit of the cave, though. So <laughs> yeah. um, we'll hear them in a the bit. The orcs and goblins would be terrified of this. <laughs> um, 
And she also talks about Saint Guthlac, whose whose story is in the Exeter book, and how he he there's this uh, gripping narrative of how he goes off into the wilderness, into the fens, to show his bravado. It says, and he he finds a mound, and it's inhabited by demons, and he has he wants to make his home there, but first he has to exorcise the demons from the mound. Um, Barrow Knights, if we're talking Lord of the Rings. Yes, yeah, yeah. and um, that's exactly it. It's that same tradition. Um, uh, she talks about various place names which have uh, combined words for kind of pagan gods or malevolent uh, creatures like elves and goblins with um, with words for mound. Like um, I'm trying to think of uh, maybe like Wodensbury. Is that a place? That is a place up, um, yeah. in the North Midlands, I believe. Um, and uh, Elvis so Howe. Barry is a, is a barrow. It could be barrow. barrow. Yeah, and Howe is a word for barrow and plough. Mm. Um, and and that so the Mees by Mees Howe near here mm-hmm. is a big is a big barrow mound. Okay, yeah. yeah. So. so the uh, she basically puts forward this very convincing argument that these these uh, monuments in the landscape were associated by the late Saxon period, by the Christian period, with malevolent spirits that they were kind of um, in in Guthlach, in fact it's somewhere where the spirits can rest otherwise they're just wandering and and um and so she suggests that maybe the reason it was so powerful putting an executed person's body here was that it was believed that their soul wouldn't be able to escape that it would be trapped there by these malevolent forces and tormented for the rest of time Gosh, that's a real so punishment isn't yeah it? And, and that's conveyed in this this poor woman's soul and mm-hmm. it's She's able to get out at dawn. So that's um, your song it, that's another amazing observation in the um, you know in in Semple's text is that uh, Grendel, who is a, a, a monster who lives out in the fens in Beowulf, he is described as a a border marcher, a, a, a march stepper. He's called so it means literally one who walks the borderlands. So he can the the idea of becoming being able to go into the heart of the community that's something you can't do if you're one of these spirits, but uh, and likewise in um, in the wife's lament the poem from the Exeter book she talks about uchtkere like cares at dawn ucht means dawn, um, and so I took these two ideas that somehow the dawn as being this like this like a borderland between night and day. And Grendel only being able to walk the borderlands of civilization, that these spirits somehow they inhabit these liminal points in in time and space, um, and that's why she's able to step out of the barrow at dawn and recall her fate, and then sink back into it as the sun rises. Yeah, gosh, it's so powerful. Your Grendel story was also really, really brilliant because it sort of revealed at the end who who he is, this person. <laughs> I mean, I'm not too many spoilers here, really, but. Um, I thought that was great because you talked about Beowulf earlier, but actually, you've obviously got sympathy for the devil. In mm, well, yeah, I think Milton did too in Paradise Lost. I think I think every writer who's ever written about the devil finds it fascinating and enthralling and a deeply sympathetic character. Yeah, Grendel um, comes across really well and, until he opens the doors of the hall. So I'm like, yeah. I just want to get in there and chat to nice people and <laughs> sit by the fire and eat and be under the benev- benevolent gaze of this wonderfully wise lord actually mm. doesn't work out like I that. started feeling like a sort of Grendel that I kept going and <laughs> perving on the wilderness like he pervs on the hall you know he goes and he stands he stands there hearing the song and in, in Beowulf I mean not in my story you know he can hear the the song and the revelry coming from the hall and he he wants in and he wants to be part of it but he can't be because he's he's 
biologically incapable. Yeah, he's Kane's kin. He can't be part of the community. And I found myself in the Avalon marshes watching the Starling murmurations, standing on this man-made path in this beautiful wilderness and unable to step into it, unable to be a moorhen. You know, I just... It's, it's that kind of longing you get, I think, when you go out into these wild places and you have to have all this equipment. I mean, look at us now, it's pathetic. You know, we can't... Um, <laughs> there's some saber-toothed tiger would have just curled up in here and not needed any head torch and fluffy microphone. Um, so you're so, feeling you, you need to get... So it's that, it's that Grendel, like... And, and maybe that impulse to destroy that get Grendel has when he enters the hall is part of our sense of dislocation and, and removal from the wilderness. But I, and then I think, by the same token, actually, I argued myself round in the end because these poems. Yes, I was getting a bit worried. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we are. You know, I, I do feel as though these these poems and these artifacts. I, I look at a whale's bone, a carved whale's bone casket, and I look at the Sutton Hoo ship burial treasures, and how they interact with the wilderness, where they're buried, the way that they evoke it imaginatively and in, in, through words and pictures. They actually show the kind of the. Um, the immense antiquity of our imaginative connection to the wilderness and our need to use it to articulate what it feels like to be alive and what it feels like to be human. And that was an argument in itself for our absolute oneness, in fact. For all we have to take rucksacks and tents and boots, um, in some ways these poems are a casting off of all of those trappings and a, and a realisation that we are, are very much um, united with this world. I think what you do is very profound, but what, but what you do is you're, talk, you're showing how it's clear that they had that connection, which perhaps mm. isn't, isn't well, you know, it's not well covered. Mm. And, and so people did appreciate birdsong, or perhaps they were irritated by it. Yes, I mean, were. something that comes across amazingly in the Welsh poem Clava Bikiaug, which I, um, is, is the way that this man with leprosy has been exiled to the forest, he hears the call of the cuckoo. And whereas in the old English poems, they often directly mirror the emotions of the narrator. So if the narrator is stormy in his mind or her mind, then the weather is stormy. Uh, this is a, a point of contrast. The, the cuckoo is a herald of spring and it's a herald of joy and, and all for of the us, good things yeah. of summer for, and, and was in, the, in okay, this, in this was, early middle, right. medieval period as well. Um, and you see that all over the place in literature. But the, the man with leprosy is standing there listening to the cuckoo and feeling, ah, I can hear the cuckoo, but I feel no joy. And I should be. And tonight my clothes are growing loose and I will be ill. And it's, it's so beautiful how that contrast is used in a different way from how it's done in the old English poetry, which is still related to it, but, but kind of uh, coming from a slightly different place. I didn't feel morally beaten over the head by each story. With so many medieval tales, there's a sort of strong moral message. Mm -hmm. It was much more expressive. Is that kind of representative of that sort of... Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons they're so fun, is that, I mean, the, the seafarer is one of these elegies, and it does, it does culminate in a, in a kind of Christian... Um, Sort of, we we need to. He's he's mourning the loss of former joys in in the Mead Hall and with yes, his community. Yes, he's just and, forever floating um, in the hope of finding the Mead yeah, Hall again. Yeah, and he, the the poem does conclude with saying, "But if I can put my faith in God, then I know there will be eternal joys one day, and I will I will. This life is transient, and it's like how how Bede says, you know, our, we're like um, our lives are like a sparrow flying in through one window in the hall." Mm. And through that momentary sort of blaze of, of light and out back into the darkness. 
Um, it's, I think it's done. Judge Feed. You Barry did. Feed. He's, you know, he's a brilliant man. The whale story about the um, about the the whale that poses in an island, and then um, lures sailors to make camp and and build their fires. And then as soon as it feels the heat of the fire on its skin, it drags them to the abyss. It says, and so too the devil will pose as a safe reef until you make your camp, and then he will drag you to hell. Yeah, that's um, noted. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but that again, you know, I feel as though we can take that and we can all imagine, we can all think of situations where we thought we were safe and we were thought we were at home and then suddenly the, the ground shifts beneath our feet and, and we need to, you know, it's, whether it's sort of social situations in your first week at university or something, or if it's, a, it's even like a psychological situation. I think we can take these things and see it as the, the ongoing secular kind of uh, potency of some of these ideas. I liked the whale story where the whale... You talk, it's really, I was sort of like, who are we here? Oh, we're a whale, beached, rotting on a beach and being sort of dismembered. And then we become the, oh, the whale, the narrator, becomes part of the ivory that, uh, mm-hmm. that is part of the casket yeah, that tells cast. the story of yeah. that awful well, poor woman ending <laughs> up in the barrow. Uh, I like, that's quite, but... Yeah, cleverly done. Oh, you thanks. sort of move through, move from. <laughs> yeah, I mean that east casket's amazing because it's it's the Frank's casket, which is in the British Museum, Room Forty One. It's got all sorts of scenes from classical, biblical, and Germanic myth on it, or legend. Um, but it's got a runic inscription that says the King of Terror was sad when he swam up on the shingle whale's bone, which is it's kind of the the it is itself made of whale's bone. It refers to itself, but it also refers to the emotions of the whale washing up on the beach. The king of terror was sad when he when he swam up on the shingle, yeah. um, which is is, is just another example of that real emotional acuity that we've seen throughout these uh, these poems and artworks. I I was interested in in just sort of setting out um, how early medieval people might have understood caves and how they got here. Um, there's a really brilliant bit in um, in beads on the nature of things. It says he, he wrote this text to kind of explain, uh, he's such a polymath, uh, to explain the, the world and its, its phenomena. And, um, and he says that the, the earth has sponge-like innards that, um, and he, he, in that way, in that use of the word innards, um, we're kind of, he's tapping into this idea of man as microcosm, that our bodies are kind of reflected by the world and vice versa. Um, and this was kind of rooted in, in ultimately classical ideas about how, how the body and how, how the universe worked, that, that, the, that the firmament, so everything that constituted what we describe as the world and its atmosphere, um, was made up of jumbling elements uh, and, and uh, those were reflected by the body's humours and governed, and those humours were governed by those elements. And so just as the earth was kind of jumbling and trying to sort itself out, so too our bodies were constantly doing that. And, um, and so he says, you know, the earth has sponge-like innards that are formed when wind um, gets trapped underground and labouring to escape shapes, shakes open gaps. <laughs> and it says this also causes earthquakes when, when it's... So, basically, I mean, the, the upshot of, of it really is that, um, that earthquakes are caused by kind of earth farts. Earth farts, yeah. yeah. yeah good on um, it's, it's really, really yeah. illuminating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the other, I think one of the... Um, things that I find really interesting as well is, is the question of the kind of uh, places like Tartarus and Erebus, these deep, deep places within the earth which were understood 
to be the hell, you know, basically hell or, or kind of the realm of hell. Um, and Isidore of Seville, who's a, who writes a book called The Etymologies, and he's a sort of very early medieval, late antique writer, and it's it's a big encyclopedia of, of everything, and he gives these kind of fictive etymologies for loads of different words, or word origins, um, and he says that uh, that Tartarus is a place where of of absolute cold, absolute stillness, absolute numbness, and he says indeed there, and then he quotes Matthew's Gospel, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, um, and so you get this sense, although it's a physical place, it's also hell. So could people experience these? People did experience these by slipping from one realm to another. Well, yes, yeah, there are certainly. I feel like um, we've done that today. But, uh, <laughs> we have. Um, I mean, there's the dreams are one way in which you access them, and you get that in in Vincent Trichtel's dream, which I was talking about before, where he he is he sort of goes down into hell, and he he then see he goes on this great journey through these sort of levels of of um, or different realms of hell, and uh, when he wakes up, he enters a monastery. And, uh, and Bede describes how he, he goes to Melrose the, um, and, uh, and he stands in, in the river, I think it's Melrose, it's the river Tweed that he stands in, and the, uh, every day, no matter how cold it is, and sometimes the ice is, is running in shards past his body and he has to break, you know, break the ice to get into the river, and the monks, the other monks say, how do you do it? And he says, I have seen colder. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen harsher. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's uh, yeah. The, the, I mean, by the later Middle Ages, by the twelfth century, you get stories of kind of uh, in Gerald of Wales of of a priest called Elidir coming to Gerald of Wales and when he's doing his journey round round Wales, and he says, oh, "When I was a boy, I I hid in a, under a riverbank from my schoolmaster, and suddenly found myself in this twilight kingdom where there were just little people with horses the size of greyhounds, and they ate milk pudding coloured with saffron, and I played." with the king's son, with a golden ball. And when I left, I could take the ball home. And they told me never to tell anyone. But then my mother insisted on finding out where the ball had come from. You know, it's, 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 and then, of course, the, he tells his mother and the fairies come and get him, and, um, or come and take the ball where he's never allowed back into this fairy realm. And that idea of the, the other world being just, just a kind of tip, tip the wrong yeah, direction away yeah, under yeah, through, yeah. through riverbanks, through hollow hills. Thin places. Thin places, yeah. So do you, you went talking of thin places and these wonderful... You, you travelled a lot for your book. Mm-hmm. And is there a particular place that was... You were here under, under the Midlands? Yeah, I have to say, I, I think... Um, here is, is wildly fun. That's how I feel about it. But the uh, the prehistoric barrow at Stony Littleton, that felt like a thin place. Mm. That was amazing. And, uh, and going right to the back of the passage tomb with your spine pressed against the stone and looking back towards the winter sun. I mean, where... You know, in, the, in this tomb where so many people had, had their remains had been buried for hundreds of years, I mean thousands of years you can't really feel entirely of this world just make sure you get out before yes. um, there's voices from the depths we heard you singing don't we yeah. it sounded really cool but also slightly terrifying um, there's slightly a... what? terrifying <laughs> it's, quite it's terrifying. melancholic oh I love you yeah. <laughs> no way what was it like down there? Alex kept trying to get into really small bits and then looking like a spider. Like, yeah, he did it. There was this kind of like porcupine spider. And he yes. just like, I looked up and he was like above me. There were a lot of legs. There's a lot of legs. Just like, it's spreading yeah. legs out. Just like, kind yeah. Of, like, yeah. Was it? it was always climbing the harbour way. Yeah, it was a lot more interesting. 
stuck. I'm sad you can come with us. Why was it more interesting? What made it more interesting? I don't know, it was just more... Kind of I don't know, it was close to death. Yeah, exactly. We know that's not person. Perfect. What an appropriate way to finish. <laughs> a magical L duet. Yes. Um, what is the German word for that? Euler. Amy, thank you so much for taking me down into the, into the bowels of the earth and telling your amazing tales. Thank um, you so much for joining me. It was very brave of you. I know there was some apprehension on <laughs> Yeah, not a natural <laughs> cave. But I, I, I've overcome my fears and I've learnt a lot. And so to the hooting of owls, I made my way back home in the fog from that amazing adventure in the underworld of the Mendips with Amy Jeffs. And I'm massively grateful to Amy, not just for her real, her really fascinating insight into that kind of medieval view of nature in the countryside, but also for helping me overcome my fear of caving, uh, helping overcome many of my fears in the studio <laughs> today are uh, Jack and Hannah, who help, who without whom this podcast wouldn't exist. Um, hello, chaps. Hello. Have Have you ever been caving? Do you have fear of caving? Two questions in one. Huge fear of caving. Yeah. Massive. I find the idea of wanting to do that completely baffling. I recently heard that for every 10 minutes you go into a cave, if something happens to you, it's like an hour out. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, uh, yeah, that's what um, Daniel was was hinting at which we didn't catch capture on the recording but he said it's yes it's hard getting out if you get uh, on that note i should say a huge thank you to daniel matthews from the mendip caving group without whom it would have been impossible to do that trip but yeah it's it's um it was i actually quite enjoyed it you can tell that you enjoyed it i did get a lot out of it and i didn't feel afraid because Dan, well, Amy was so cool and without any sort of worries at all. And the three, her three sort of, um, her three acolytes were really bold and just went off. But Daniel was so, Dan was so relaxed and encouraging and supportive. So, you know, massive, massive thanks. But so have you been caving? No, I would never. No, never, no. ever. Really? What about you, Jack? Been many a time. Have you? Yeah, dry and wet caves. Oh, my goodness. We should, I should have sent you instead. Oh, well, I mean, I'm glad I didn't. I'm, but. I'm, I'm very, pers- I'm very ferret-like, which I think. <laughs> I've always thought so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite. So I'm, I don't worry about getting stuck, and I'm also like, if people have found these routes, no one's got stuck because otherwise they wouldn't go down them. So there's like I have they're tight though. Some of them were quite they're tight. tight. Yeah. But then I'm also like you're slim as a weasel though. So right, yeah, ferret <laughs> weasel. Ferret. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think there is a part of me that gets nervous. And my, my mum's claustrophobic, which I think naturally there's a bit that's come down to me because of mm. that. But I've done it quite a few times, and I always think if you're, I've always gone with obviously there's someone that knows the knows the caves and knows where they're going. And so if they've done that before, they know that that route's fine. So. uh I just know that in, in my head, I know that that's fine. So the likelihood of anything going wrong or getting stuck is very slim. Uh, even at times I feel like I'm going to get stuck. Yeah. I well, I admire your courage and sort of general relaxed attitude towards being stuck 
deep underground with these billions of tons of rock above you and below you and around you. Yeah, but you don't know how much there is around you. Well, I do. I've been calculating it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you could just be a metre under the ground for you, know, it, it, it's, I just don't think about it. I recently went down into Big Pits, which is a, a museum Brilliant. of... I mean, it, it's a coal mine mm. in... Uh, Blind Avon in the South Wales Cogfields. Not you, fit for me. <laughs> it's very... It's, uh, yes, yes, yes. Jack is at least a good head, taller than I am. So you've been there, Hannah, I'm sure, have you? No, as, I as haven't, a, weirdly. No? Yeah, really? you'd think it would be at the stuff of school trips, but... Um, it's really good. Yeah, it never happened for us. Really good. It's, uh, they turn, anyway, you go deep underground and you go along these tunnels with some of the old miners who are amazing. But at one point they turn off the lights, the lamps, you've got these headlamps, and it's utterly pitch black. And you realise that people used to work with the pitch in pitch black because they children, children, children used to work down there on their own. Yeah, to feeling their way around or just with a little candle. Uh, terrifying. Mm. So I have total admiration for people who oh, admiration. It's beyond admiration. It's just shock and mm. horror that people could uh, oh, do it do it for joy these days. Um, but that experience taught me that there's a lot to be there's a lot to be discovered down underground. What did you think of Amy's song, Down in the Depths? Amazing. I had like proper goosebumps. Yeah. The quality of that sound down there is so beautiful. It's amazing. Well, yeah. I, I think there's something to do with the recordist. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, she's amazing. She's got a beautiful voice. And also, um, she wrote that song herself. And it does, if you get a chance to read her book, which I have done myself, uh, as you can tell, that first chapter is just so haunting. And, and she captured that in the, the, the sad lament. So, yeah, multi-talented, too talented, Amy. Hmm. <laughs> uh, we're, we're all left, I'm left feeling a little bit sort of, uh, oh, need to add strength to my book. <laughs> um, so you can hear more of Amy on the podcast. We did an earlier, I did an earlier episode with her episode 128 where we went to the Avalon Marshes again in Somerset to talk about her first book which is Storyland again retelling tales of ancient Britain and that's all about the origins the founding of Britain and that's also great plus it was above ground and we heard lots of birds and other lovely natural sounds and Amy's latest book is called Wild Tales from Early Medieval Britain it's published by Hachette so look out for that. Great read. Talking of writers, um, I, the sad news came through this week that great countryside writer, nature writer, writer of, about people, Ronald Blythe has died. And I'm a big fan of Ronald's work. And his famous book was called Aikenfield, uh, where he profiled a village in Suffolk. An amazing book, sort of insight into sort of 1950s farming, farmed countryside. And it sort of profiles of all the individual characters of a village at a time of change when motorization and mechanization is coming in and the big city is drawing people away from the countryside. Utterly brilliant book uh, if you want to understand the sort of foundations of modern British countryside, where we got to, how, how we've reached here. And... He, he's a lifelong uh, observer of the countryside. And his latest book, which we gave away a couple of weeks ago from the podcast library, is called Next to Nature. And it's a sort of gathering of many of his sort of best, best bits of, of his writing. And we're giving away another copy this week. Regular listeners will know that 
we ever, for, for the best email or the best uh, missive we get each week, we like to send out a little prize of a book. And so we've got another copy of Next to Nature. And we do have a very worthy recipient, I think, uh, who'd like to delve into the podcast post bag and see what we've got. So what we have here is a recording by musician David Delahaye, who was actually interviewed by Annabelle for episode 168 of the podcast. This recording is an underwater recording of some swimming seals. actually like this recording so much that we're going to use it as a sound escape so you can everyone can hear the full length version of this recording in a few weeks brilliant thank you david really appreciate you sending that in that's a really glorious sound sound of the week please follow david's example find us lovely sounds from the countryside um david has earned himself that lovely book by ronald Blythe, which will be in the post shortly if you'd like one of our a book from the podcast library send us your thoughts Send us your sounds and we'll read them. We'll play them in the podcast. We got a, uh, we got a nice example of a question sent in in the, the podcast post bag, um, I think from Kiki from the oh, other yes, week. Yes, good, good point. So Kiki, Kiki King, who lives in the US, uh, sent us a lovely message and you can hear that in the very first episode of this season. And she's just got back to us and she's sort of said, she, she says, uh, just to follow on, um, which is quite pertinent for this season, where we are sort of thinking about the mindfulness of you know, the importance of walking for our health. And she says, "I work as a therapist for children, and while my work is immensely rewarding, it can also fill me with a heaviness, which is why I try to prioritise walking during the day to ground myself. I very much wish that my walks could be in the countryside, but since they cannot, listening to the podcasts helps me connect to nature when I need it most." Well, that's lovely to hear. And so, you know, that's one of the aims of the podcast is to, to give people that sort of nature when you can't get there. But she's, she asks, I wonder if other listeners have experiences of healing work done in connection with nature, either personally or professionally. And it's a really good question, uh, really good sort of request, because I'd like to, I, we'd all like to hear more tales of how, I mean, we know the healing power of, of nature. We know the healing power of being connected to wildlife just the joy of putting one foot in front of another and the rhythm of walking can be so soothing. But, you know, we need sort of, we'd be great to have a few more examples of how that actually practically works. So if you've got some tales, send them in. Yeah, it could well be our letter of the week. Or we could even come and walk with you and record a podcast. So get in touch. You can email me. My name is Fergus Collins and my email address is editor at countryfile.com. And that's about it for this week. Thank you so very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have, leave us likes and feedback on whichever podcast provider you use. But for now, from me and the team, it's goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>